Amen. All right, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. Have you ever quit anything? Or when have you been most tempted to quit? Or where in your life right now are you most tempted to quit? That word quitting can carry very negative connotations. Quitting is bad. You should never quit anything that you do. Or there could be situations that you quit on that you have no regrets. You're like, thank you, Jesus, that I was able to quit that job that I had that I didn't need to be in or that assignment that you gave me or this relationship that wasn't healthy I need to get out of the relationship maybe situations that you look back and, and you consider that you quit it, it might even still carry some pain because of what you went through in that relationship or maybe getting out of that relationship uh, maybe things that you wish you wouldn't have quit you wish you would have preserved uh, I remember in ninth grade beginning Jane Eyre I made it to page 53, and then I quit. And I think that's what I made on the test. I just couldn't, couldn't get through it uh, to this day. Um, I remember uh, Jennifer and I quitting a church van driving ministry when Abigail was born. We would leave the house at 7 a.m., get back at 2 p.m. every Sunday, and we were like, thank you, Jesus, for Abigail. <laughs> she is here, and we can't do that. And we were definitely uh, serving the Lord with grumbling. We uh, were doing it, but really weren't doing it uh, well. Uh, there's also painful quitting, past relationships, moving on from churches or moving on from jobs. And, you know, those relationships aren't the same. You can't be as close to them as you were when you worked together or you served together. And there's a longing of once being connected and no longer connected. And some of us have felt that in life. Uh, but what about your walk with Jesus? What about your membership in a local church? Spiritual disciplines, your faith. When have you been most tempted to just walk away? Like I think that's one of the dangers that we're beginning to discover when we are, as we're coming out of COVID regulations and shutdowns, hopefully coming out and not going back, is this disconnectedness that we've felt as a people of God and as local churches. You get out of the normal rhythms of connecting with people because of shutdowns or, or precautions you're taking. And it might be like, well, do I really need to go back to that? Maybe some people are tempted in their mind to consider, how much does that really need to be part of my life? I seem to be doing okay, even though I'm cut off from so many people. You can be tempted to just never go back. And that might be what happens in a lot of local churches. People get out of the rhythm of experiencing life with the people of God, and they're led to believe, I didn't really need that rhythm to begin with, sadly. Um, I remember the third year of being a Christian, I couldn't be as perfect as I wanted to be. And I quit trying to walk with Jesus. I quit reading my Bible. I quit praying. I quit striving, all out of frustration with my battle with sin. And by God's grace, He chased me down and brought me back and renewed my affection for Him. But maybe you're here, and by God's grace, you're coming out of that season. Maybe you have been running away from Him. You have been keeping a distance from Him. You have been engaging, and, and like you're back, and you're feeling affection for Jesus again. Today we're beginning a new series that the Lord willing will carry us through the rest of this year and, and through Easter next year, walking through the book of Hebrews. It's the first time in the life of the crossing that we walk through a non-Pauline epistle, a letter 
not written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, unless, of course, you think Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about that a little bit. We spent quite a bit of time the last few years in the Old Testament, and we, we could be spending quite a bit of time the next few years in the New Testament. Hebrews is that perfect book to bridge the Old and the New, because no book in the New Testament is more steeped in the Old Testament than the book of Hebrews, written in the 60s A.D., before the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., written by someone in Paul's circle of influence. That's about as much clarity as we have about who wrote Hebrews. Uh, someone who listened to Paul a lot, had, had understood Paul's theology and how to apply it to the church, and then they spoke it in their own language. If Paul did write this, and there's some people who still believe he did, it's the most unique letter Paul ever wrote using language he didn't use anywhere else and style he didn't use anywhere else. And maybe, who knows? But it also could have been Apollos, it could have been Luke, it could have been Priscilla and Aquila, some of the best uh, cases that are made. And someone in Paul's circle, because there's a reference to Timothy, and that's part of Paul's circle. One of the church leaders in the second century said that only God knew who wrote Hebrews, but it was definitely written by God written by the Holy Spirit to God's people. And the early church received it immediately. This is doctrinally sound, pure, from God, intended for the edification of the church. Hebrews was written in the uh, second generation Hellenistic Jews. So uh, ethnically they were Jews, but grew up in the Greco-Roman world. Second generation, so they didn't hear the gospel directly from Paul, one of the apostles, but they heard the gospel through someone who heard the gospel from Paul, one of the apostles. And so the church has multiplied now for a generation beyond the original apostles. And they lived in an urban environment, probably in or around Rome, somewhere in Italy is the best guess. Definitely urban. Hebrews refers to the city more than any other New Testament book. And uh, the purpose of the letter, first 12 chapters of this letter are really more of a sermon than a letter. They're really more of an exhortation. The 13th chapter... Sounds like a typical New Testament letter. But the purpose of the exhortation is to encourage these believers not to quit. Not to quit, specifically, Jesus. But to persevere. Life had already been hard for them. We'll see as we walk through this letter. They'd already gone through some degree of persecution and harm. And there was more to come. They were feeling the weight and pressure of what was to come. And they were faced with this temptation to retreat to the safe confines of Judaism. Judaism was a state-recognized religious group that might feel safer to them than publicly identifying as Christian. Interestingly, this is before 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But at that time, it might feel safer because it was more recognized, it was more official than Christianity. Especially if you were in and around Rome in the 60s AD, right when Nero is burning down Rome and blaming the Christians. And Christians are being rounded up and killed. Like Paul, like Peter, and like other brothers and sisters that they knew. And to be publicly marked as a Christian was to live with a target on your back. And they were tempted to say, I'm out. No thanks. We've, been, we've gone through hardship. We don't want that. Let's retreat to where we think it's safe. In the book of Hebrews is filled with warning passages unique to the book of Hebrews. Warnings about the futility of retreating and falling away. How detrimental it would be for your soul if you turned away from so great a salvation, if you trample over the blood of Jesus, if you tasted the heavenly gifts and then you dismissed them. 
And the book is also filled with some of the loftiest, most theologically rich and beautiful pictures of Jesus you will find anywhere in the Bible, including today's passage. This big, full, incredible picture of Jesus that makes him irresistible and desirable to God's people. How can we turn away from him? How can we substitute anything in his place? If we have him already, why would we return to anything less than this full embrace of Jesus? Yes, this life is, is, with him is hard, and there is no promise it won't get harder. It's always been hard for God's people, though. We've never been promised in this life or in this world it would be less than that, but we have been promised. It is worth it because of him, because of who he is, because of what he has done. Who that then makes us and the life he calls us to live. And so that's where we begin in chapter 1, verse 1. The writer begins with as high a view of Jesus as you will find in Scripture. There might be other mountain peaks in the Bible as high, but there are few, if any, that are higher than this view of Scripture. And the writer in his sermon's exhortation to help them persevere, not quit, begins with Jesus, verse 1. Long ago... God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The first we see that God speaks. Apart from God desiring to make himself known, we would not know him. We would know him, we would not know him beyond just general revelation, what you can discern about God from creation, that God is big and powerful and majestic and creative. But anything specific that he's revealed through special revelation, we wouldn't know unless God chose to make it known, and by his grace and love, he has willingly chosen to make himself known, desiring a relationship with image bearers that he has made in his image. And he did this long ago to the saints in the Old Testament through a variety of ways, of ways and a variety of times. The Old Testament is amazing. We spent most of our time on Sundays the last two years in Old Testament passages, seeing God speaking and revealing himself to Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, shaking Mount Sinai, being a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to lead his people, giving the law, descending in glory on the newly built temple of Solomon, appearing in dreams at times to say King David in 2 Samuel 7, to promise him an eternal throne and an eternal king. Also at times speaking in a still small voice to call Samuel to be a prophet who would one day anoint David. Or remind the weary prophet Elijah that he is in fact not alone in his devotion to the Lord. And of course God sending prophet after prophet to God's people to say, thus says the Lord. This is God's word to God's people. When we say God speaks in the Old Testament through a variety of ways, it's an incredible statement. Because it's so amazing, it's so rich, and it's so full. Like, all of us would have loved to be, be on the scene and experience what they experienced back in those days. And maybe somehow there's a DVD library in heaven, I guess we should say cloud now, 
is streaming video in the cloud in heaven, and we'll get to go back in time and see those things. It's convicting at times, the Old Testament, like with the prophet Jonah confronting the Jewish people over their racist, ethnic superiority view of themselves over other nations that God also desired to provide repentance to. It's comforting and encouraging at times. Can you imagine your life without the book of Psalms? To give voice to our lament and our hurt, as well as the hope that we still have in the face of hurt. It's practical and helpful, like the wisdom of Proverbs, to know how to manage your money, and how to be a good father, and a good mother, and a good husband, and a good wife, how to work hard. It's encouraging, like the passion of the Song of Songs, what God desires for us to experience in sexuality in our marriages. The healthy skepticism of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we relate to that. The rock-solid faith of Job as he experiences the worst of life. The bold faith of Esther. On and on we could go. So when you hear the writer of Hebrews putting a spotlight on Jesus and emphasizing there's no one like Jesus, he's fulfilled all the signs and shadows of the Old Testament, so don't go back. When you hear that, what you're not hearing him say is the Old Testament is garbage. Or the Old Testament can be overlooked, dismissed, don't worry about it. It was everything God wanted it to be for that time, to make as much of himself known to his people that he wanted to make known at that time. But what we have discovered and what we know standing here 2,000 years later, as amazing as it is, it's not comparable to how God's made himself known through Jesus Christ. It, 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 was, it was leaving us at, at, at a... At a Standing point where we're waiting for something more. The Old Testament ended waiting for something more. This is not all God wants us to know. This is not all God desires for us to see about Him. There's more to come. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm it. This is it. And so with Jesus, in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, we have all the shadows and all the signs fulfilled and revealed. We, we now have everything God wants us to know. Complete, full. God's not speaking anymore like he spoke in the scriptures. But God is speaking through the scriptures. So it's not God spoke, it's God speaks. To who? To us through his son. Like this is not just an academic exercise when we engage in God's word. As we'll see in chapter 4, the Bible is living word of God. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's working now to speak now to you and to me. Like God's speaking to you through his word, through his son, Jesus. Last days referring to the time period between the first and second coming of Jesus. Whenever you see last days in the New Testament, it's these almost 2,000 years and counting between the first and second coming of Christ. And in these days, he's speaking to us through Jesus. So have this high and lofty view of the Old Testament and all the ways God's chosen to make himself known to his people. Now even more, even greater, more precise, clearer, more direct, he's now speaking to us by his son. And there's more details that he gives. In fact, seven different qualities are named. Not coincidental that there are seven qualities, the number of perfection in the Bible. These qualities will be elaborated on as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews. So we'll keep coming back to this very first passage and saying this is a further explanation of how Jesus is this. 
But we'll focus on the first six this morning, and we'll kind of, I'm going to kind of clump them together. First, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Jesus is the agent of creation. As John writes in his pro prologue in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So if you go back to the beginning, God is speaking everything into existence from nothing, and we find out later in Scripture that this was the Son of God at work with the Father and the Spirit. And nothing that was made that was made apart from the Son, the Word of God, bringing it into existence. And when you are the agent of this creation, when you're making this happen, creation from nothing, speaking it to existence, then part of the package deal is you own it. It's yours. You rule over it, you have the deed, you have the title, and you pass it to no one. God's not battling someone for occupancy of his throne over all the creation. It's his. No one comes close to taking that from him. Yes, but science says this, and science says that. It took this long, and it happened through this process. Now, there's definitely room for discussions and debates about what science can teach us about the natural world, about creation, and, 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 and how things may have happened. But there's also room for, for science to, to leave what's testable and provable and to go into theorizing itself, where science can't answer questions. It just gives us more theories about how things happened and when it happened. But whatever scientific view you hold regarding creation, the biblical theocentric view has to be it started with God. And before there was created matter, there was only God. Creation is not eternal with God, but it was created from nothing when God spoke it into existence. He is the first cause. He is the originator. God is the agent of creation. If matter is eternal with God, then matter is co-eternal with God, co-equal with God, and God is indeed an invention of creation. And there is no creator. And we don't have time to deep dive that today. You can read books and look up stuff online. It's been done by people smarter than us. You can find those debates. But the best evidence and explanation for how all of this holds up is God is eternal and decided to create everything from nothing. He is the first cause, the first movement. He is the originator. How, when, what was the process like? We don't know. He hasn't chose, chosen to make that known. We have our, Everyone has their theories. But we know Jesus was the one doing it to... Hold up biblical Christianity. Not Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus in the incarnational form, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, existing before he showed up as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But even if you remember that story, while he was a baby in the manger, he was also the second person of the Trinity, who is the heir of all things and creator of all things. And God made that known. By showing us, even while he was a baby, creation was worshiping him. When there really was nothing about him or what he had done that deserved that worship. He was just a baby. I mean, babies are great, but come on, I'm not worshiping a baby. But God had angels come, shepherds come, wise men come, Anna, uh, Anna, uh, uh, Simeon and Anna come in Luke chapter 2 to proclaim this baby who's done nothing except cry and use the bathroom and eat. This baby is, in fact, God in the flesh. 
and we worship him as the second person of the Trinity. Secondly, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. God's glory, the shining forth of God's presence and character and nature. It's when God shows up and everyone knows they are in the presence of God. God on Mount Sinai, God in the burning bush, God's glory descending on the Temple of Solomon, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The sun is the brightness, the shining forth of the presence and reality of who God is and that God is here. This is Jesus. It was hidden and, and, and veiled during his incarnational ministry so that it could only be seen through the eyes of faith. If Jesus would have unveiled himself in his gospel ministry and, and displayed all of his glory, everyone would have bowed and worshipped him. Because that's what happens when you know you're in the presence of God. But he kept it hidden and veiled to go through that sacrificial, substitutionary atonement ministry, that ministry of humility Philippians 2 talks about, so that he could suffer as a sinner in our place on the, on the cross before his final exaltation one day. But when you see Jesus unveiled, there's no denying who he is. And you see this in places like Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. When he returns in all of his glory, there's no more hiding. All the world will see. All the world will know and all the world will bow and worship, either willingly because we love him or unwillingly because we mocked him, but now we have to also confess he is the one. And there's no one like him. Just imagine as, you, as best you can this scene from Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. We love the image of Jesus in the Gospels, right? That's why we love the Chosen. Some of you are watching that series. That's why we love the Chosen so much. It's just a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he probably was like in that Gospel incarnational ministry. But... While we love that image of Jesus and, and desire to imagine Jesus like that, this image of Jesus is also true and just as real as the humble suffering servant from Nazareth. And this is Jesus displaying the full glory of God without any of it being hidden. This is a Jesus that can be terrifying, especially if you don't love and treasure him now. Especially if somehow you think Jesus is optional or convenient instead of King and Lord. You have him in your contacts on your phone if you need him, but certainly he's not like the full operating system of my life, right? N.T. Wright put it well, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham 
a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Most of us try to live where it's comfortable. I don't want to deny Jesus is real. I don't want to be an atheist, so I affirm that he is real and the Bible is true. But I also don't want to see him in all of his radiant glory and power because that would demand I give him my total allegiance. And frankly, I still like to be in charge of my life. And so we live in this, as N.T. Wright said, this shallow in-between state. On that day in Revelation 19, there will be no in-between state. And the writer of Hebrews is going to keep pressing us for 13 chapters not to retreat to the in-between state, but to go all in. To go all in with full allegiance to Jesus no matter what it costs, no matter what price you have to pay, no matter what suffering you have to endure. He is too marvelous, too beautiful, too worth our total allegiance and devotion. He hasn't come to have part of us. He's come to have all of us. Because he gave all of him in order to purchase us for himself. He is the exact expression of God's nature, the writer says. The word expression refers to the imprint of a seal in soft wax to seal a letter in that day. The wax would be put over the edge of the letter. A piece of metal like a ring or a stamp would be warmed and then impressed into the, the soft wax so that the mark of the writer of the letter would go with the letter to say, this is the exact expression of my thoughts about this subject, my desires for this thing to happen. Jesus is that exact expression of who God is, the most accurate expression of who God is. There's no one, there's nothing that tells us who God is more than Jesus. So far, the chosen, we love it so much because it seems to be accurate. Even the parts that we might call sanctified imagination seem to be in line with the character and nature of Jesus. The first episode, they get out of whack. We're going to be like, whoa, hang on. It was good. And, and thankfully, this guy knows that. He's creating that. We know Jesus. We know God through Jesus. And we only know Jesus through one avenue, the Word of God, the Scriptures. The Scriptures alone have been written, preserved, and translated to make Jesus known to all the world. Which is why Bible translation is such a big deal. It's why cross-cultural missions to learn the heart language is so this story of Jesus can be shared is such a big deal. It's the only way we can make Jesus known to people all over the world who have yet to hear of him. Because they don't have the Bible in their language. Too many people, billions, still waiting to hear the name of Jesus because they don't have the scriptures in their language. And God is looking at his children, his church, and saying... It's your job. It's your job. You can't outsource this. It's the church's job to make this happen. Because it's the only way Jesus can be made known. It's why we spend so much time teaching and using the Bible to drive all we do as a people and as a church. It's why we read, read the Bible last year. It's not so we can be literate or have theological brains that we can flex and show off. So we can articulate certain things in certain ways to make people say, look how amazing our articulation is, these doctrinal truths. The reason we engage in the scriptures with all that we are is so we know Jesus. It's so we know Jesus. It's him that we are connecting with. It's him we want to be intimate with. It's him we want to know and be, be known by him. 
This is why we are people of the book. It's for our hearts to be awakened and made alive, to know Him and treasure Him and grow an affection for Him. If time in the Word feels like school to you, God have mercy, you are missing it. It's not like time in school. It definitely engages the mind, but it has to go to the heart. So your love, your treasure, your Jesus is inflamed. Should feel more like a, a date night with your wife or your husband, where, where everything goes as good as possible and you are enjoying that relationship, the deepest relationship we have apart from Christ in this side of heaven. And love and affection is growing for this person as you know them more and more. Thirdly, he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Not only did he create everything, but everything remains where it is by his powerful word. Not a molecule, atom, neutron, proton, electron, quark, not the smallest particle of matter continues to exist and move in the entire universe apart from his powerful word sustaining it. Every single hair on your head, day of your life, beat of your heart, breath in your lung happens because Jesus is sustaining your life, upholding it by his powerful word. One Bible teacher put it like this. Think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The distance across the galaxy, the diameter of our galaxy, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Our galaxy is just one little speck of dust in the universe as it is. If there is a person who holds all of that together with the word of his power, his pinky as it were, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Lastly, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If these, in these attributes we see the kingly aspect of who Jesus is as ruler and sovereign of all creation, we see his prophetic role God speaking to us through him, the ultimate prophet of God. And now lastly, we see the priestly aspect of Jesus doing everything necessary to purify us and cleanse us from all sin. And we know he did everything necessary because the writer tells us he sat down. The work of the priest in the temple was incredibly exhausting. Sacrifices and prayers and rituals and slaughtering animals to atone for the sins of the people. But when the final sacrifice was made and he declared, it is finished, he sat down. You sit down and the work is done. No more work to do to purify us from our sins. Now he sits in the place of honor at the right hand of God, interceding for us, advocating for us, and waiting for his father to say, it's time. Go get him. It's time to bring this into the full consummation of the eternal state that this is where the work and person of Jesus for us gets even more personal. He's not just a king to create, sustain, and rule over creation. He's not just a prophet to speak God's revelation to us, but he is a priest to serve us and provide a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled and brought into the family of God. This is how and when the person and work of Jesus becomes ours. It's when we become his through his priestly, sacrificial work. So who is like him? 
Who can compare? Who has done all of this for those who are so undeserving? No wonder the writer of this letter is exhorting his believers tempted to quit. No wonder he begins here. It always begins with Jesus and comes back to Jesus. He is the foundation for everything we do in life. If you want to hate on organized religion, good, I'll join you. There's a lot of things that's messed up about organized religion, a lot of flaws, a lot of mistakes. But this writer doesn't begin with organized religion and call people to be devoted to an organization. He begins with Jesus and calls us to be devoted to Him. And all through the letter calls us to be devoted to Him. Go to Him outside the camp who suffered for your sins. Chapter 13. A local church at its best is striving to proclaim Jesus and call people to give their lives to Him because He's given His life for you. So let's organize. Let's work together to make this Jesus known in our city and in the nations. Through living out how he's called and created us to live. And through speaking the gospel to people so they would hear it and come alive. Let's, let's organize and work together. Share this message with others. And there are times we come together and we do this well and we get it right. And Jesus is seen. And Jesus transforms lives like Sydney's and others in this room. And then there are times we get it horribly wrong because we are still incredibly simple. But the flaw is us, not Jesus. He is the same. And so we can openly, publicly confess and repent of our sins and keep pointing people to Jesus. We will fail you. He won't. We will stumble. He doesn't. We will sin. He never sinned. We're not perfect. He is. And at our very best, you won't see how amazing we are. At our very best, you will be amazed by Him. So where are you tempted to walk away from Him? Where are you tempted to retreat from Jesus into the safe confines of comfort and security by focusing your mind and heart on someone or something other than Him? Where are you tempted to give your allegiance to something or someone more than Jesus? Where is he calling you to follow and obey him? To go down a certain path, to do a certain task, to engage in a certain way. And you can see, I don't know if I want to do that. That's hard. And so you're in that in-between. Do I, do I go all in with Jesus or do I stay here where it's safe? Where is that for you? right now in life. The writer will later say in this letter, in chapter 12, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, pioneer, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lay aside every hindrance and sin that ensnares us so we can run after Jesus and keep our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Many times we just want to know what's sinful. I want to keep it easy. Is that sin? It is? Okay, I won't do it. That's an easy way to live life. The writer says, lay aside every hindrance. Wait. That's the harder question. If we're just asking what's sinful, that's a black or white issue, usually. But if we should be asking what good things, hindrances and weights, should we lay aside to do the better thing? run after Jesus? That's a much harder question because we're going to have to say no to things that might be good because they slow us down or they get us distracted from running after Jesus. 
But that's the kind of allegiance that Jesus has called us to live. All in with him, with all that we are. He is worth it, the writer would say. There's no one like him. Two families that are close to us as a church have found this out over the last few weeks. And they gave, or they give public testimony to this reality. As Kevin and Nancy's daughter, Stephanie, and her husband, Max, as they brought their second daughter into the world, stillborn, a few weeks ago. Stephanie shared publicly on social media that when she knew in delivery that Eva Shalom wasn't going to make it, that's when she turned to Max, her husband, and said, it's still true. It's all true. Referring, she said, to rejoice in the Lord always. Even now I can rejoice. It's possible to rejoice in Jesus and everything. And when Alta was with her mom in the last days of her life, she shared with me and gave me permission to share with you these thoughts. In her last days, they were spending, she had to spend so many days just around the clock with her mom. And they were singing about feasting in the house of Zion, where there would be no more sickness, hurt, or disease. And she was, her mom was praying for her kids and grandkids. And she was living in these final moments with such an expectancy that at any moment she's going to open her eyes and see Jesus. So close, so ready. And she said that one moment she opened her eyes and saw Bruce and said, You're not Jesus. <laughs> Bruce was like, Oh, I'm just Bruce. <laughs> If Jesus is enough when life is at its hardest and worst, staring in the face of the death of a child or the death of a parent, then doesn't it make sense that he will hold up no matter what we face? No matter what we go through, no matter what he calls us to endure. Let's not turn away from him to what we think is secure. Let's turn to him even more and lean in even more and be amazed by him even more. If you're here this morning and, and you're hearing the gospel proclaimed, you're seeing the gospel evident in the lives of, of Sydney, and you're like, that's not my reality. Maybe I've just been religious. Maybe I've never heard the gospel before. But, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and revealing to you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And he's painted this beautiful, clear picture that Jesus is the one who can save you from your sins and give you life in Him and be adopted into the family of God and live forever. Please do not leave here without speaking to someone who can walk you through what the gospel is and how Jesus can change your life. And today, by God's grace, can be the day of your salvation. Speak to the person you came with. Speak to myself or one of the guys leading music, one of our, our elders. Just about everyone in this room can walk you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today can be the day that Jesus moves in and makes you a new person. Father, thank you so much for who Jesus is. He is everything. We sing about him. We pray to him. We declare him to others. We enjoy him. We treasure him. We experience life together in him. All of eternity will be singing the praises of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the Thank you by your grace we have heard and we have believed and in whatever ways we need to lean into Jesus, repent of pursuing comfort and security, repent of sin, repent of embracing weights and hindrances instead of embracing Jesus. And whatever ways we need to turn from that and trust in Jesus again, help us. 
And for anyone here who's never come alive in Jesus, may today be the day of their salvation as they turn from their sins and trust in the only one who can save them. The only one who can bear the full weight of their hopes now and for all of eternity. Do this because you love us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, ma'am.